I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you an image here that uh, a friend of mine, uh, John Rorvik, sent me this image last week after we had to cancel again. So this is, this is real. This is apparently from the National Weather Service. This is snow accumulations by day since 2019. And he said, you're not crazy. And I was like, thank you, thank you. I finally have evidence that I'm not nuts because it seems like we always have to cancel on Wednesdays. Look at, Wednesday has double the amount of snow than Monday. I mean, is, that makes no sense to me. If I didn't see this, I'd be like, that, why would Wednesday get more snow? So I, if, if you're a meteorologist, please come see me afterwards. I would like this explained. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. So we're going to start having Wednesday night community on Mondays. It's still called Wednesday night community, but it's Mondays. Um, a couple kind of housekeeping things here. Spring break is coming up March 15th. So that's not next week. It's the following. And there's no TSM events, no childcare, and we don't meet as well. We take off because all the kids are off and a lot of people are traveling and that sort of thing. So put it on your calendars. Don't show up here the 15th, okay? But then we'll be back the next week. So a little bit of hit and miss. And then um, lastly, uh, let's see here. March 22nd, I think is when it is. Um, I asked Dick Foth to speak on, in this series, on the topic of politics. You know, that's, that's sort of his, you know, he's, for those of you who, who know Foth, he spent 15 years in Washington, D.C., in sort of the power halls, and just brings a lot of wisdom to that, that area and that category. So I was talking to him about it, and then he called me the other day and said, hey, I've got a friend from D.C. He said, could I bring him with? And I would kind of like, we do sort of a Q&A sort of thing, and, uh, and I said, well, if you trust him, I trust him. And he said, Brent, if you think I've got stories, he said, this guy's got stories. So um, anyway, that'll be in a couple weeks. I would love to get from you guys um, questions. It doesn't have to be real specific. It could even just be like, I would like to hear this issue addressed. You know what I mean? Just kind of vague generally. Um, there's an email in the bulletin, uh, questions at timberlinechurch.org. So I would love to be able to give both some of those categories or areas of interest that you might have in the realm of politics. So they kind of have some, somewhere to go on that evening here. Last thing, I want to show you a quick 30-second movie trailer. Uh, say just a quick word about it and then take a look at the screens here and it should be. Should be up. Higher generation searching for God. What you're seeing is not something to explain, it's something to be experienced. This is a house of worship. They're making our congregation uncomfortable. Well, maybe they should be uncomfortable. They don't belong here. They want peace and love. Isn't that the same thing you want? This is your home, and I want you to tell all your friends about it. I don't know how many... I went and saw this last, I think it was Sunday night. Fabulous. Absolutely fantastic. And a couple reasons. I mean, just I would say go see it, you know, no matter who made it. This was produced by Lionsgate, which is a secular production company. So it, it, it matters that movies like this do well. So, you know, oftentimes they hear Christians, and for good reason, complain about the stuff that Hollywood puts out. But when we show one of these companies, hey, you'll get our money if you put out good content. <laughs> That's always a good thing to do, I think. So I would highly encourage you to see it, like I said, um, certainly for that. But it's just, it's just a fabulous um, movie that really does a great job talking about this time uh, in America where there was a fantastic revolution. And, you know, Greg Laurie, who runs Harvest Church, he's, he's the young kid in this. And it shows Chuck Smith, who, who, who started all the Calvary chapels, and out of that movement, vineyards came, and so many different things in America, America changed, because hundreds of thousands of hippies uh, who were desperately searching for something, they didn't know what, but they, they were longing to fill this deep void inside their lives, and they stumbled upon Jesus. And there was this revolution movement that was absolutely fantastic. And it was a big moment for people in the church to go, am I going to accept this guy? 
you know, he's dirty, filthy, he's feet, he's got no shoes on, and, you know, they're high on drugs and all this sort of thing. And, and so it was, I think, a, a, um, a moment, a fulcrum moment in American church history. So anyway, would really encourage you to go see it. One of the, I'll, I'll say this last thing about it. One of the, I think maybe my favorite thing about it was it didn't whitewash the characters like to the point where I almost was uncomfortable. I was like, oh, don't make him make Chuck Smith a little look a little better than that. But one of the themes they wanted to come out is um, God uses flawed people. And that's great news at the end of the day. <laughs> because I know some flawed people. No. I am a flawed person. And 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 so it was just this sort of like remembrance of okay, God uses really flawed people. So anyway. Go see. I could just keep talking about the movie. You want, you want me to just keep talking about the movie? The rest of it? I really liked it. Um, so we're in this series. We have spent several weeks. We've um, explored culture, how Christians should think about culture, that we really need to have a theology of culture. If you remember, we used this image of think about like a boat going through a lake. And what's always behind a boat that's going fast anyway? <laughs> it's a wake. And imagine you're a boat, collectively and individually, and you're leaving a wake behind you that doesn't dissipate in moments. That's culture. And we're all doing that collectively. We're doing it individually. And, and that's not bad. That's what we're mandated to do. We're creating God's image, and he's a creator by nature. So he calls us to create. We looked at the concept of truth, the nature of truth. What is truth? And we saw this idea that truth has to do with correspondence. That a statement, an idea is tr true, it possesses the quality of truth, if it corresponds to the way the world really is, if it lines up with it. We considered the idea of how, what's an appropriate way to use the Bible for making ethical decisions, because that's what we're going to be doing in this series, that's what we do in life. And then last week we started by saying, we need to have a theology of gender, and beyond that, we need to understand what our culture means by a gender ideology. What is our dominant secular culture's gender ideology? <clears throat> and so we looked at this idea that um, it makes sense to us that people would struggle with identity, right? Because Genesis 3, there's the great rebellion, the fall, and all of our relationships God, others, the world, even to self, and that's the key one, we're ruptured. So we're fragmented people. And so we have identity dysphoria, all of us. We all struggle with identity, meaning I don't feel quite harmonious. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's called identity dysphoria. It came as a result of sin. And as a subcategory underneath that, this idea of a gender dysphoria should not surprise us. We should go, well, that makes quite a bit of sense because we all have identity dysphoria at one level or another. And we looked at how this is changing. We looked at some of the uh, main thinkers through the sexual revolution. Some of the people, in fact, uh, Timothy Leary was, was uh, in the movie as this guy who, you know, he's promoting you know, free love and hallucinogenics and all that sort of thing. And we looked at who are some of these key figures that things were percolating in Western culture that, that led to the sexual revolution and, and that there's still effects of it. And some of this is the effects of that. And then finally, we looked at how is it being communicated, for instance, to young students. And it's through this uh, gender unicorn, a very you know kind of cartoon childlike example of introducing some deep confusion to young people's minds of doing this. Sex, we've had different words for it, sex, gender, whatever, that they've torn gender away from sex, and they say they're totally different things, and that's the great confusion. And so when they speak of gender, they're not meaning necessarily, you know, which bathroom you walk into. Um, they're not meaning biology. When they mention gender, they're talking about a subjective sense of self that lives, it's not even hardwired in your brain because they want to get away from biology. It's, it's just sort of a subjective self-identification that's sort of a how do you feel, and that's what it's rooted in. Um, 
<clears throat> that is gender ideology. And so it's really that, that, that subjective sense of self, that trumps your body. That's way more important than your body. And that's why we said it's, it's also a little bit Gnostic, because the ancient Gnostics, it was this idea that physical is really not that important. What's important is the spirit. And so this is kind of a parallel. You can kind of view it as sort of a modern-day Gnosticism in some respects. So here's what I would like to do tonight. This is going to be kind of a part two. Tonight I want to consider if this gender ideology is embraced, you know, collectively, what are the areas of culture, that's the wake behind the boat, what are the areas of culture that, that there's going to be an impact on? They're going to look different. We need to think about the consequences. Remember we talked about um, ethics? We, we said you consider a couple things. One is, what are the consequences of, of this decision? Um, so I want to look at six areas of culture that if this is embraced, uh, there's going to be some fallout. I want to look at some other examples of what's called body dysmorphia that I think if we find parallels, it weakens the argument for the gender ideologues who, who are pushing this idea that whatever subjective thing you, you have in your head, that's what wins, that's what you should go with. <clears throat> look at some even practical questions of things like using names that someone uses, uh, have changed to, or pronouns that they <clears throat> might say are theirs, and even thinking about family members. How do you engage? You know, I, I, I know people whose, whose children have, have struggled with their gender identity, they would say, and it's been very, very difficult for the family. Um, and then look at this idea of how valid is it, how much weight should we put on this idea of seeking your authentic self? Because that's the terminology that is constantly used in this conversation. You need to follow your authentic self or find your authentic self. And I, I'm going to suggest there are some problems with that that I don't think are avoidable in any way. So let me do this. I want to start with six areas of culture, <clears throat> six areas of that wake that um, we need to consider if this is embraced. The first one has to do with privacy. <clears throat> privacy. Um, there's a reason we have separate bathrooms, uh, separate locker rooms, separate um, homeless shelters, and on and on based on sex. Now, thank goodness we don't do that anymore uh, based on race, right? <laughs> thank goodness. Because what skin color you have is totally irrelevant if what, for what bathroom you're in or what shelter you're in or what locker room you're in. But our bodily sex is highly relevant for that, if, if you're in a state of being undressed in a certain room or performing intimate bodily functions, there's a certain amount of privacy that is just appropriate given our male-female bodies. But here's the proposal from the gender ideology. We'll, we'll still keep the boys and girls separate bathrooms. But the ones who can go in there is not going to be based on their biology. It'll be based on their gender identity, that uh, internal uh, sense of self as male, as female, or as neither, or as both. Because remember, according to this ideology, uh, gender is a spectrum. We talked about this last week. There's no binary. It's not male, female. It, there, it's just a spectrum of uh, masculine to feminine, male to, to female. Um, <clears throat> Privacy, number one. Second concern in culture we need to have is safety. Um, this is a slightly bigger concern, I would say. Now, I'm going to give you some specifics, like examples. I'm not doing that to draw attention to these people, but I'm doing it so you don't think this is hypothetical, okay? Are you with me on that? I'm not trying to make someone look bad or anything, but I'm going to use national public news examples I'm not ousting anyone. These are things that are, you know, talked about. But I want us to think about this as real life. This is rubber meets the road. 
<clears throat> safety. Um, for, as an example, in Loudoun County, Virginia, this is just maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I can't remember exactly, uh, there was a high school male student, he identified as a female, in this area of Virginia, people who identified as female were allowed into the locker rooms at school of girls, and um, he sexually assaulted, he, he allegedly sodomized a ninth grade girl in that bathroom. He got in some trouble. They transferred him to another school, same district in the area, where he sexually assaulted um, another girl. And uh, if you remember, there were school board hearings. Parents were upset. There were fights in there. Uh, people were understandably quite upset. But there's other examples we can think of, too. Think of a battered woman's shelter. Okay, these are cots. They're about three feet apart. They're usually in a gymnasium. This isn't the Ritz-Carlton. It's, it's, you know, close areas. Um, <clears throat> think of a man in a battered woman's shelter sleeping three feet away from a woman who has been abused. How safe is that? There's actually an example. Uh, this was just, I think, this last year. There's a Christian ministry up in Anchorage, Alaska, Alaska being sued because it, it, it was a place like this. And a male showed up at about midnight, intoxicated, drunk, identified as a female, wanted to stay at the shelter. They said, sorry, you can't. They called him a taxi, drove him to a men's shelter. And now he is <clears throat> suing this ministry um, for the non-discrimination policy that Anchorage has. So you can see there's privacy concerns. These safety concerns are pretty significant. Um, another example is prisons. Prisons are separated by men and women. California made a change in that actually allowing men who identify as transgender and vice versa to request to be transferred to the other prison. Well, as soon as it was done, hundreds of male inmates, surprise, surprise, <clears throat> requested to be transferred to a women's prison. There were only a handful of women who requested to be transferred to the men's prison. And very soon after this happened, there were women who alleged sexual assault quite quickly. Even safety in athletics. Um, th there, there are physical differences that matter when you come in contact with another athlete. It could be going up for a rebound. It could be rugby. But <clears throat> simply given the geometry of a male body coming in contact with a female body. And this is why even testosterone suppressors, that doesn't change the length of the bones of the man. That doesn't change, you know, change the muscular structure in any way. Just the nature of this physical force when it comes to colliding bodies. <clears throat> Number three, let me give you a third one. There's privacy, there's safety. Thirdly, there's equality. This is another concern that we would need to have a serious conversation about. Equality. Again, I'll use another example, uh, just because it's so we know this isn't uh, merely hypothetical. University of Pennsylvania swimmer, uh, Leah Thomas. Uh, Thomas, as a man, competed in the men's swim team for several years, but then identified as a woman, it was transferred to the women's swimming team, for the men's, he was ranked 462nd in the men's collegiate swimming, where he won the women's national championship. And so this is what we have to... Do you realize equality doesn't mean treating everyone equally? Equality means treating equals equally and unequals unequally. That's what equality means, meaning men and women are not the same. You do not treat them the same. So it's even uh, putting in danger the equality that women have. So there's privacy, there's safety, there's equality. Number four, there's liberty, a liberty concern if gender ideology is embraced wholeheartedly without reserve. Let me give you three. I could give you a bunch of examples. I'll just give you three here. Um, will there be forced speech? That's a liberty issue. There, there are Christian teachers who have been fired from their jobs because they don't want to use um, either a preferred pronoun of a student or call them a girl mister or a boy miss. Um, and many of these cases, they're saying, look, I, I won't use the pronouns they don't like. I'm just going the, to call them their name. And they said, no, you, you must do that. And they lost you know, their jobs because of it. Um, Another example under the liberty is 
will there be mandates to pay and perform bad medicine? Uh, you're an employer. You have an insurance company for your employees that covers if, if women get um, uh, breast cancer, they, they are um, able to get a double mastectomy. Well, if you cover that, if someone is transgender and they want to get a double mastectomy because of that, you also would be forced to cover that. The employer side or the doctor side. If you're a doctor and you do surgeries, like double mastectomies for cancer patients, would you be forced to do a double mastectomy for someone who is transgender? There's a, there are two Catholic hospitals right now being sued for refusing to perform hysterectomies on two women who wanted to live as men. And the hospital is saying, we're not discriminating because you're transgender. We don't care about that. But we have policies that we don't do surgeries to remove healthy uteruses. It's not medically necessary. So that's just our code of ethics. And then third one, kind of the other side of it, will good medicine be prohibited? How would good medicine be prohibited? Well, right now in New Jersey, if a young girl who is uncomfortable with her body goes to a psychiatrist, a doctor, and he works to help her feel comfortable with his body, he loses his practice because that's called conversion therapy. Helping someone feel comfortable in their biological body is conversion therapy. But if you, if you remove these parts and change them, that's affirmation care. So even, even, the, even the language is, is quite easily manipulated in these areas. So there is a privacy concern, there's a safety concern, a liberty concern. Uh, fifth, there's a family concern. Um, gender ideology wreaks some significant division in families when this happens. Again, I'll just give you a you know, public example of one that was actually celebrated and yet still concern. When, when um, the athlete Bruce Jenner was announcing his transition, and if, if you remember, it said, you know, it was called me Caitlin, you could actually see his youngest daughter um, at the time, and he was, wasn't comfortable with this. And she, she voiced her discomforts, and she was shamed on social media. She was ridiculed on social media. But she was saying, but I feel like I'm losing my dad. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to make sense of it. Is it that I have two moms now, or I just... And she was concerned about this, and it affected this young girl, understandably <clears throat> so. Number six, last one I'll give you here, is bodily integrity. Bodily integrity. Um, the old language that was used was sex reassignment procedure. Uh, that was the old terminology. The new terminology is gender-affirming care, which, of course, care is a bit of an odd word to use there. But here's, here's the problem. This is impossible. It's just impossible. You can't reassign sex because it was never assigned <laughs> to begin with. It, it, it's, if something, something can't be reassigned that was never assigned. Instead... This idea of one's sex or gender, it's hardwired into the person at the moment of conception. And it, and it goes to the, to the recesses of who we are. It's this idea that biology would tell us that there are two ways for humans to be organized for sexual reproduction. There's the male way and there's the female way. There's, it's, it's not a spectrum. Now, people will oftentimes ask, what about, what about intersex? What about people who are, are, are intersex, which really that is a misnomer of language. It, it's, not, it's not truly intersex. What intersex is, this is the technical language of it, it's a disorder of sexual development. Now think about that. Intersex has been called a disorder, that's a key word, a disorder of sexual development. Bodies that do not fully develop a male reproductive system or a female reproductive system, there are some bodies like that. It's a disorder. There are some bodies that might have aspects of both, but they're not actually both male and female. What they are is an incompletely developed male 
with some vestigial or atrophied organs, or they're an incomplete developed female with some vestigial or atrophied male organs that did not develop. But they can't be both. And even more than that, it's if someone is going to use a disorder to demonstrate that an ordered thing uh, doesn't work, you wouldn't do that in anything else. You wouldn't find someone who, who has hearing loss and say, well, see, that re, uh, uh, works our whole understanding of how the ear works or of hearing or should humans hear. You'd go, well, th- that's a disability. That's a disorder. That, that says nothing about the right order. It's just a disorder. And that's what these cases are. So it's not a third sex or anything along those lines. Let me, let me read for you some words by Deborah So. Deborah So is a sexologist. <clears throat> she's a doctor. She's not a believer. <clears throat> she wrote the book, The End of Gender. And Dr. So writes this, biological sex is either male or female. Contrary to what is commonly believed, sex is not defined by chromosomes or our genitals or hormonal profiles, but by our gametes which are mature reproductive cells. There are only two types of gametes, small ones called sperm that are produced by males and large ones called eggs produced by females. There are no intermediate types of gametes between eggs and sperm cells. Sex, therefore, is a binary. It is not a spectrum. So I think that's, I think that's a helpful thing. You know, for, for her to point out what makes someone male, it's not genitalia, it's not even chromosomes, it's the gametes. It's the reproductive cells, and there's only two kinds. There is no third kind that can be helpful. So even a surgery can't make a woman a man or vice versa. Now, a surgery can feminize a man or can masculinize a woman. You can even have lots of surgeries done. There are tertiary sex traits. Men uh, can have their, their knuckles filed down so their knuckles are smaller or their, or their jawline changed to, to look more feminine. But that's a feminine male. And likewise, a female can have things done, changing s- some of those sex traits, but it doesn't change if it's a male or a female. Let me, let me explain to you... Um, Typically, what's done with, with younger kids, uh, and this is, I think, for most people, one of the biggest concerns is um, the idea of really introducing this uh, confusion to young kids early on and then moving them through this transition process. There's a four-step protocol transition for young kids, and this is, this is how it goes. Um, the first step is a social transition. This is done, let's use it as, uh, as an example, a little boy, two, three. And he's not as rough and tumble as the other kids. He's a little bit quieter, a little more sensitive, um, likes to play with different toys. And so if this child uh, gets in this gender ideology and the adults in the life, so they will introduce them, uh, give them a new name. They will make available to them a new wardrobe. Um, and then say, this is the bathroom you use. That's, that's called social transitioning. So it's just socially transitioning them. That's, again, about three or four years old. The next stage, this is around eight, nine, ten. This is preventing them through going through puberty by giving them puberty blockers. Um, and, and these are off-label. There, there are puberty blockers that the FDA has approved. What they're approved for is a condition called precocious puberty. This is a five, six-year-old little girl starts developing breasts. The FDA has approved these puberty blockers to, to stop it, say, for a year or two, so that when she's at an appropriate age, she can go through puberty. That's, that's what they're approved for. They're not approved for this at all, but that's how they're being used off-label here. So this is preventing, say, an 8, 9, 10-year-old from, from starting puberty. And we know from statistics that virtually 100%, because here's the thing that's sold a lot, is, well, this gives you time to just think. This is, this is allowing you to wait. It's pausing puberty, they say. Here's the thing. Statistics show that nearly 100% of people who do this 
go on to take the third step, which is cross-sex hormones, taking the hormones of the opposite sex. So stage three, taking boys taking estrogen, girls taking testosterone. And many physicians, from as I've been reading, the ones who are, who are hesitant about this, they fear, and they call this a self-fulfilling treatment protocol. A self-fulfilling treatment protocol, because if you tell a young person, hey, your sex was assigned at birth, and your, your true gender identity determines your sex, and modern medicine can reassign it if it's not lined up there. So think about this. A young boy, he's uh, a boy, he's 13, okay? Now, when he was younger, he didn't really feel like he fit in. He wasn't quite as strong or that sort of didn't, uh, didn't fall to the typical stereotypes of, of males. And, and so uh, he, he's been on puberty blockers. He gets to 13. All the other boys, they've got some facial hair. He's smaller. Uh, he doesn't fit in with them. What does that reinforce? Oh, maybe I really am a girl inside. And then goes on to the cross-sex hormones. Do you see how this is a self-fulfilling um, protocol, treatment protocol here? <clears throat> and then, of course, the last and final one is surgical transition. Um, and this really is, you know, again, under this bodily integrity, this is, this is really an attack on one's own bodily integrity. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've, I've listened to a couple stories. I've, I've been wanting to hear individual people's stories, not just statistics and facts, but I want to hear. And there are a number of people uh, who, who have detransitioned went through this process, have realized this, this didn't fix any of my problems. I still have the mental health issues and challenges and depression and anxiety. And so they have detransitioned. And I listened to this one man crying, talking about his own story. The, these surgeries are brutal. I mean, they are disgusting, what, what they do. And this man was, was talking about, he, he had his genitals fully removed and a vaginoplasty created to be a a sort of vagina, and what he said was this. He said, you know, what, you know what they didn't tell me? They didn't tell me that my body would think that I have an open wound the rest of my life, and that my body would be constantly trying to heal and close this open wound. So he has to continually dilate it just to keep this open wound open. This poor man, poor man, that's how he lives. Or a phallioplasty. Look up sometime... Uh, a woman's arm who's had a phallioplasty, when they, they, they de-sleeve a woman, they cut off not just the skin, but muscle and tendons, and that's what they use for the phallioplasty. And these women are just mutilated. It's, it's absolutely frightening. I, just, I feel so bad for them. <clears throat> but here's the reality, and I'm, I, don't, I don't say this in a, in a crass way, but it's, it's kind of, we're not meat Legos. That's not the way God made us. We cannot be taken apart and put back together or reconstrued in a whole different way. <clears throat> and remember, the tendency to do this, remember when we talked about the fall, <laughs> that in the fall, we have humanity saying, I'm going to determine my identity. I'm going to determine my purpose in life. I'm going to determine my function. It's, it's a self-creation idea. And as I see in this right here, and again, there are people stuck in this. I am not talking about the people. Week one, we said a lot about there's gender ideology, and then there's people stuck in gender ideology. I hate gender ideology. I love the people stuck in it. Okay? So this is not against the people. I'm talking about the ideology. It's anti-human, which that goes back to page three. It's a, it, it's a way of breaking down what it means to be human and saying there's a way to be human apart from God. And there's a way to find happiness apart from God. And it's selling out our fellow humans. That's why this is so important. Let me, let me look at some other examples. Those, those were the five areas that, uh, six areas, excuse me, that gender ideology I think we need to consider if it's going to be embraced. Um, some other examples of body dysmorphia, which I believe um, 
challenges the gender ideology uh, of kind of you know, switching your body. Um, remember that gender ideology, this is what it says. You've got two things, a body and a subjective sense of self, right? And which one wins? Subjective sense of self always wins, okay? <clears throat> here's, here's some problems with that. This is the only time we ever reason that way. Um, I'll give you an example. I, um, I, I was taking a class on LGBTQ issues down at Denver Seminary a couple years ago, and there was a speaker who came into the, to the class. He was a uh, youth pastor, and he told this story. He said, one of, my, one of the girls in my youth group <clears throat> was uh, in the hospital, and parents called me. Would you please go visit her? She was struggling with um, anorexia, had been for years. And he went in to go visit her, and the doctor met him on the way in and said, who, who are you? And I'm, I'm the pastor. And he said, listen, you've got to get her to eat. He said, her body's shutting down. She will be dead within the, the, a week. You've got to get her to eat. So he goes in there, and the way he described her body was just so sad. He said it was just a skeleton, just bones. And he said, and he sat down in the chair right next to the bed, and he said one of the first things that she did was she, you know, she had kind of a gown on. She pulled back the gown, and he said, exposing her, her, her thigh. He said, it was just bones and skin. And he said she grabbed the skin that was loose, and she said, look how fat I am. Here's my question. What's the loving thing to do in response to that? To affirm? Well, of course not. But yet the subjective inside part of herself thought of her body as fat. Why is that not loving to do there, but it's loving to do here? What's the difference? They're both saying my body's wrong. Objectively, it's not. But my subjective sense of self is saying it is. If, if you can't distinguish between those two examples, you've got to rethink it all. All of it. Because we objectively know that's not... What's loving to do is to speak truth. Kindly, you don't slap her. But to speak truth, that's the loving thing. Not to affirm. Affirm would be unloving. Well, that's the exact same thing with this situation right here. And you know, <clears throat> I think it's helpful to think of a lot of different examples. You could think of the example of an amputee. Do you realize there are people who have body dysmorphia that they think, and again, this is a, you know, it's a mental health issue. They go to the doctor and they say, I feel like I'm an amputee and I shouldn't have my arm. Would you cut it off? Would that be morally right for a doctor to, well, we've got to match your mind, so let's amputate your arm or whatever it might be. Once again, it's no different. This is just amputating different body parts to match the subjective sense of self, the untethered self from reality. These people should have our pity. Let me... Um, okay, kind of another question here. Um, is it being inauthentic to not go with your subjective feelings of self? That's the claim... The claim that's made, I think it's a lie, is that um, there is this idea that authenticity is living according to how you feel. That's being authentic. And if, if you go against how you really feel inside, you're being inauthentic. That's sort of the idea that's told. I would suggest the Bible gives a better word than authentic or a better concept, and that's this thicker biblical concept of integrity. Integrity means living in accordance with God's design, regardless of how you feel. That's what integrity is. It's not being a hypocrite, <laughs> just because your feelings don't match. Think of an example. Think about you know, Christian formation. You forgive someone for something they've done, okay? Ten minutes later, you, you have a feeling of, all, yeah, you don't really, you're angry again. W were you being inauthentic and hypocritical 10 minutes ago? No, you, you know forgiveness is a process. It might be that you, you forgive them again there, and then a day later, you feel it all again. 
and then you and then it's a week later, and then it's a month, and you know that it's a process in conforming your mind to reality. It's not being hypocritical. It's not being inauthentic or in any way like that. Listen to, um, let me go to Romans. That's not it. Here we go. Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 through 4, it says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, look at the word there, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You're putting your body <laughs> under the, the direction of God and how he sees fit. A sacrifice is turned over and you have no more control over it. It's submitted. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That's your goal. You want to know what God's will is, not your subjective feelings. And what is good and acceptable and, perp and perfect. Opposite of finding truth inside your subjective feelings, the Bible is, is antithetical to that. The Bible never tells you, go into your authentic self and see what's there. That'll tell you where to go. Follow your heart, as it were. That's not the message of the Bible, you guys. The message of the Bible is, you know that internal authentic part of yourself? It's worse than you think. It's super broken, uh, and, and it's rotten, and yet God's going to change it. He's going to transform it. So you need to submit yourself to him and allow him seeking his will for your body, your life, for <clears throat> everything. Um, this was kind of an interesting, I'll share this example because I thought it was so... Our culture is saying a lot about you need to find this authentic self of yours, there's a problem with that. I don't, think it's, I don't think you can. And we have some evidence. One of the ones that I saw just recently, um, some of you might know um, Ellen Page. She's an actress. She's now identifying as Elliot Page. And she was very public about this um, <clears throat> experience. In 2020, um, Ellen Page, young actress, stated this, and I'm reading a quote from her. This came from a... Uh, Quillette article, but this is quoted from, and they're quoting from Time Magazine. 2020, um, Ellen Page, now Elliot Page, stated this, I can't begin to express how remarkable it feels to finally love who I am enough to pursue my authentic self. Okay? And then she said in Time Magazine, I'm fully who I am. Okay? Maybe so. Here's the problem. In uh, 2014, six years earlier, she came out as gay, lesbian, and she said this, almost exact same words, I am gay and I'm tired of hiding. I suffered for years because I was scared to be out, she stated. Now it's vital to be authentic and to follow my heart. What's the problem there? Well, in 2014, her authentic self was a, was a lesbian woman, okay? In 2020, her authentic self is a straight man. Which one, I mean, which one? Because she was, she was psychologically certain back then, and she's psychologically certain back right now. Here's my question is, are, are you the best determiner of what your authentic self is? Have you ever been psychologically certain of something and then later you realized how wrong you were? I have. That means we can't trust our hearts. That's the Bible's message. Don't trust your heart. <laughs> Don't do it. It'll trick you. It'll deceive you. Seeking your authentic self, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a shell game. You'll never find it. <laughs> Especially if you're going to find it in your sexuality. Oh, boy. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be hurt. Because your sexuality won't save you. Now, the cool part is our sexuality points to what can save us. To that marriage that's talked about elsewhere. 
in Scripture. Let me, let me make a couple comments real quickly, and then, and then we're going to wind down here. Just some kind of practical ones about, what about if someone comes to you and they've changed their name? And they're using different pronouns, and they say, I would, I would like you to call me this name and use these pronouns as you, you know, how, how might you? I'm, I'm going to give you, the Bible doesn't, I can't give you the proverb for this. <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, this is my response, Brent's response. Okay? I'll, I'll try to be careful when I'm doing opinion versus whatever. This, this is how I, how I would tend to approach it is, um, there's nothing sacred about a name. Uh, people change their names all the time. People in the Bible had their names changed, right? Levi became Matthew, and on and on. There's, that's, that's not abnormal. I would call, if, if you want to be called Carrot Top, I will call you Carrot Top. That's fantastic, okay? <clears throat> now, what about pronouns? I, I respond differently to this. Do you remember the week we talked about truth? What is it that makes a sentence possess the quality of truth? corresponds with reality. Pronouns are a function of language. Language communicates truth claims. Okay? So think about it like this. If, if, if someone said to you, um, where's Brent right now? And you said, well, they are up on the stage. No, there's only one of me. That's a lie. If someone said, where's Brent? You said, oh, she is up on stage. No, I'm a male. That's a lie. If you said he is up on stage... You made a truth statement, okay? Here's my, I want to be as kind as possible. I will not lie because then I'm a liar. And truth is a sacred thing. Truth is very, very careful. So I will not lie, though I will seek to be very kind. I think of the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his Gulag Archipelago. He said, let a lie into the world, let it triumph even, but not through me. He was so committed to, the, to, to truth, not through me. I will not lie <clears throat> in any way. Now, having said that, let me, let me give you also a little piece of advice. Um, try to avoid using pronouns as much as possible if you're talking to someone who's giving you pronouns and it doesn't match. Try to avoid using pronouns. If you're intentionally using pronouns like poke them in the eye, you're called, uh, the biblical word for this is jerk. <laughs> um, don't do that. But you can largely, I've, I've kind of had to craft this in some emails with people back and forth where I figure out a way I'm not going to use a pronoun. I'll use your name. If it's academic settings, it's professor so-and-so, it's doctor so-and-so. You can do it. You don't have to be a jerk about it. But do not lie. Do not ever lie about that, but be kind. And this is true of even family members. I was talking to a parent recently, and they said, what do I do? This, this is where my child's at right now. And I said, play the long game. Don't evaluate the destiny of your son or of your family based on a moment. I mean, if I, if I based the destiny of our family on a moment of one of my kids or of me even, we'd all be in trouble. Play the long game as you think about this. Avoid truthless compassion and compassionless truth. Steer away from those things. Avoid truthless compassion and compassionless truth. Don't fall off the road on either side. So don't compromise truth, but maintain that relationship. You may be the only believer in their life and you might be the little prick of conscience even. They know where you stand. You don't say it every time. But yet, maybe when they're detransitioning, when they're having questions, when they're wondering, and everyone else is always supporting them, they go, I do remember that one Christian. You know, they didn't agree with me, but they were always kind to me at work. They were always, always kind. Maybe I would talk to them. And most importantly, never stop praying. Never stop praying. I've talked to so many people who just, man, I was so off. There's this guy by the name of Beckett Cook. He's got a, a program on, and he was in the homosexual lifestyle for years and years and years, and, and he has this show now. He's a believer, celibate guy, and, and he brings, he, he brought on this woman. He goes, this is the woman who prayed for me for like 20 years, and he's, he's a passionate follower of Jesus. <clears throat> and see, here's my prayer. 
I think one day, well, this is what I'm praying for. <laughs> like that Jesus revolution, a lot of these people who are going to get spit out by this ideology and be really deeply broken. My prayer is that we have men walking in this church wearing dresses. And we've got women and men walking in this church who tragically, their body has been cut up and mutilated and they never found what it was they were looking for. And we can point him to a guy who when he rose from the dead, he kept five wounds. <laughs> he kept five wounds and we point him to that. And you know what we say to him? We say to them these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. <laughs> He's not condemning it. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Would you pray with me for that? <laughs> I want to see a revolution of this community who's been seeking for wholeness, seeking for meaning and relationship, and they haven't found it and they won't find it in this self-made effort, but they will find it one day coming back to this Jesus this wounded Jesus. That's their only hope. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. <laughs> Amen? During this next song, Nothing But the Blood, I'm going to ask you, if you haven't already picked up elements, go to one of the tables in the room, and in your own time, take the bread, Christ's body broken for us, and the cup, his blood shed, and just listen to the Lord. And then once you've taken it, stand and let's sing the song out. <laughs> <laughs>